Well, uh, hopefully you've made it to Jeremiah chapter 2. I've been so busy talking, I have not arrived there yet. But if you would stand with me as we read Jeremiah, parts of Jeremiah chapter 2 together. We're in our summer series on family relationships, and we've been concentrating on that primary relationship in a family, the, the marriage relationship. And we've seen there's applications not just for husbands and wives, but for all members of the family. And we're going to complete looking at the role of a husband this morning, Lord willing, and then begin this morning also looking at the role of a, a wife in the marriage relationship. And this is one of the texts that we're going to look at as we look at the role of a wife, probably not a passage that you normally hear used in conjunction with that, but we're going to do so this morning. Let's, uh, let's begin in verse 1, and we'll, we'll, we'll skip some verses here in just a moment and, and end up through verse 13. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Verse 1, the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the, in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Verse 5 says, Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in the land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through, where no man dwells? Verse 7, And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. Verse 12, skip on down to verse 12, please. It says this, God says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. Please be seated. Let's ask the Lord that he would continue to bless our time worshiping him this morning. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it reveals to us how we are to live, and we pray for each person in here as we think about your role for us in whatever relationships we find, we pray that we'd be obedient to you, that we'd seek satisfaction not in ourselves, but in you, the, the living water, and that our, our fulfillment would be found in, in you alone, and we would not rely upon ourselves for, for fulfillment and, and joy, and, and give us the grace to be obedient to you, give us the grace to, to continue in this, this road of sanctification as we follow after you. I pray for husbands and wives specifically this morning who may be going through some very difficult times, times in the wilderness. And I would ask that you'd give them your grace to be obedient, you'd give them the ability to, to press on, to continue in, in following after you. I pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. There's a, a great deal of construction going on right by my house, or I should say there's a great deal of construction not going on uh, right by my house on, on Cummings, and, and like that construction, uh, I'm, I'm well behind schedule. 
Uh, so I need to just go ahead and, and dive into the text here. Uh, we've continued to talk about the role of a husband. Remember the overall series this summer is, is Faithful Families. As we've been traveling through the book of Ephesians, we've come to Ephesians chapter 5. And in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, Paul begins to talk about the different roles that each person in a family has and, and how they, as a person who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ, who's, who's had their heart radically transformed, now how do they live? How do they live that out? And as we looked first of, first of all at the role of a husband and wife, we saw that the goal of marriage is oneness. The goal of marriage is oneness. And now we're kind of, the last couple of weeks, we've taken a step back from that overall goal and we've said, okay, now, now how do each party in that marriage pursue oneness? And we first of all have looked at marriage from the perspective of the husband. How does the husband pursue oneness in that marriage relationship? And Paul tells us in Ephesians that the husband pursues oneness by sacrificially loving his wife. That's the exhortation that Paul gives husbands in Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives. Then he gives a, an example of loving your wife and the person of Jesus Christ. And husbands, our love for our wives is modeled after Christ's love for his what? Church, exactly. And so as we as husbands look at Christ, we see how Christ loved the church, and then we love our wives in a similar manner, or at least we strive to, right? We looked at what a Christ-like husband who is loving his wife sacrificially does. We saw that a Christ-like husband loves his wife by leading her, by sacrificing for her, by spiritually nourishing her, by physically providing for her, and then by cleaving to her. And then we're going to look at the last two things that a husband does briefly this morning, and then move our attention into talking about the wife. We're going to look outside the, the book of Ephesians to look at these last two characteristics. Uh, the sixth characteristic here is found in Colossians chapter 3, which we've already looked at this morning. A Christ-like husband loves his wife by being gentle with her, we read in Colossians chapter 3, by being gentle with her. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 19, and listen to what Paul writes there. He says, as he's talked about this this, this transformation by the gospel. He's, he's talked in Colossians chapter 3 about how a, a person is, has been raised to walk in newness of life. He talks about the passage we just read about how we relate to one another. Then he talks about how husbands should love their wives, or wives should love their husbands in verse, uh, in verse 18. And then here in verse 19, he says this, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, as you think about the layout of Colossians, you should see that there's a great parallel with the book of Ephesians. Remember, Ephesians has talked about some, some doctrinal truths of how we relate to God and how he brings us into relationship with him. And then he lays out how we are, first of all, saved by placing our faith in Christ. Then he talks about how we're transformed by the gospel. We have this new nature. And then after we have this new nature, we begin to live in a new way. Uh, Colossians is laid out the same way receive the doctrinal truths, place our faith in Jesus Christ, receive this new nature, this transformed life, then new relationships. So these gives that same instruction to the husbands that in, in, in the book of Colossians that he does in the book of Ephesians. Husbands, love your wives. Now he adds a little addition here. He says, uh, love your wives and be, do not be harsh with them. It means do not become 
bitter with them. Do not become embittered toward them. The command, I believe, is given to husbands here because a natural tendency, apart from the gospel, is for a husband sometimes to be a very bitter, angry person. Husbands are oftentimes struggle with responding rightly to tough situations, stressful situations, and a husband can become bitter or harsh toward his wife in several ways. Perhaps a husband, as things are going stressfully in his life, he becomes short in his speech with his wife or dismissive of her opinions, or he become angry, or he can become uh, even intimidating. You know, oftentimes in a marriage relationship, the, the husband is, is, is stronger, oftentimes, not always, a stronger, or has a, a deeper voice. Again, not always, but sometimes. And uh, so in that, it, he can sometimes raise that voice or be intimidating physically or just, you know, just by how he carries himself. And, and Paul says here, look, look, husbands, that has no place in a Christ-like marriage relationship. Husbands, a Christ-like husband, loves his wife by being gentle with her. We've talked about gentleness before. It's this this picture of of strength under control. Sometimes we think of gentleness as as weakness, and that's not Paul's picture of weakness. I've used this illustration before, but imagine this this massive man who's just rippling with with muscles. Can Can you imagine it just looking at me here? It's a little hard. Close your eyes if it helps. And then uh, and here's this, 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 this man just rippling with muscles, and yet he's, he's holding very gently a, a newborn baby, this new dad. This guy is massive, right? He could, he could you know, just, just tear the place he's standing in apart, and yet there's this helpless baby that he's holding gently. He's not weak. It's strength under control. And husbands, we are to be strong. We're to be strong leaders, but it's to be a strength that's under control. It's gentle to our wives. So that's the sixth characteristic here. I want to move on. The last characteristic, a Christ-like husband sacrificially loves his wife by understanding her. And you can turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. It's kind of more towards the end of your Bible. 1 Peter chapter 3. It's after the book of Hebrews and and James. Now, uh, last week, as I mentioned these last two characteristics at the end of our time together, someone came up to me afterwards and said, hey, look, Daniel, don't even bother with the last one, okay? Uh, the, sixth, the, the first six are, are, are uh, hard enough. Let's not get into la-la fantasy land on the seventh one here. Now, here's, here's what Peter says here in 1 Peter chapter 3. He gives some instructions to the, the wife, and then he says this uh, to the husbands. He says, verse 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an, in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so their prayers may not be hindered. And certainly this is a, a very difficult instruction for us as, as husbands to first of all comprehend, to wrap our, our minds around, and, and then to implement. What Paul is saying here, this word understand means to have a knowledge of, to have a, an, an intimate awareness of. And so a, a husband, what Paul is saying here is should, should know his wife very well. He should know what, how she thinks. And, and oftentimes, what happens in a marriage relationship when there's conflict and, and people are talking about the conflict is this. They say, well, you know, we're talking about this situation and it seems like we're talking about the same thing, but it, it also seems like we're using totally different words. Now, I understand that my wife is speaking English, but the way that she's using these English words make no sense to me, Okay. I'm talking about this uh, here, and, and she's talking about it here, and we're just not connecting. 
Uh, maybe it's, it's, we're talking about purchasing a car, and, and oftentimes, sometimes, what happens is maybe a husband's using a very hard, concrete words to describe a situation, and his wife is using more emotional words, and they're, they're talking about purchasing this car, and the, the husband says, you know, I, I kind of, uh, I'm a little nervous about this car because it, it costs uh, X amount of dollars, and I know that the financing on this would be this, and I don't think, I'd rather we saved up our money, and da, 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 and the wife says, this car kind of makes me feel special. And, uh, it's like, well, we're using totally different words to describe the, the same thing. And, and, and the husband sometimes, in, sinfully, throws up his hands and says, you know what, we just don't understand each other. You know, we're, we just speak different languages, and, and uh, she doesn't talk the way that I talk, and so I can't understand what she's saying. Peter says, husbands, understand your wives. In a situation like that, in a situation in which you're, you're speaking using uh, different value systems and, and, and having different understandings of even how to approach a problem, husbands, the responsibility lies upon you. It's incumbent upon you to figure out what she's saying. And as you understand what she's saying, as you understand her, to be able to articulate what you're thinking in a way that she can understand. Now, both parties have that responsibility, but it's primarily incumbent upon the husband to do that. In my office, I have this, this picture, or it's a, it's a poster. It's, it's by Rembrandt, and it's called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And I, I keep that picture in my office because it, it reminds me that, that no one is beyond God's grace. And so if a, if a person is, is struggling with something, they come into my office, and we can remi- I can remind them of the story of the prodigal son. I said, look, God is, always has his, his arms open wide to the person who repents and, and comes and, and comes to him. That's my understanding of that picture. If you came into my office, that's what I'd tell you about it, if you asked me about it. Now, my college roommate was an art history major. And if you came in and you asked him about that print, uh, he could tell you that it does, you know, the theme is God's forgiveness, and then he'd go a lot deeper with you. He'd say, now, Rembrandt lived from this period to this period, and uh, he was contemporary with this artist and this artist, and this is how other artists handled this theme, and he'd talk about other, other renderings of the prodigal son. He said, now notice how the lighting goes from, from left to right here, and the shading does this, and notice how this character's face is highlighted, and, and notice the brush strokes that he uses here, and, and, you know, an art history major is going to understand that picture much more deeply than I do. I look at it and say, that's a pretty picture, and it reminds me of something, and you, oh, that's all I understand. An art history major understands it more deeply and can explain it more fully. The same is true in our marriage relationships. I believe that I understand my wife better than anyone else in the world understands her. I've become a student of my wife. I know her better than anyone else. And sometimes uh, if someone comes to me and says, hey, Whitney said this, I think she means this. And I say, no, she means, she means something else. And they say, mm, I'm not sure. You know, I just want to laugh at them. Okay, you know, please tell me what my wife thinks. This, this should be good. Now, sometimes I'm wrong, but generally... I understand what she I understand how she thinks. Gift giving, okay? I've become a student of my wife so that I can understand the gifts that she would like to receive at Christmas or birthday. And the first couple of years of our marriage, I got her things that I thought were pretty good gifts, you know, cool little gadgets and trinkets. I noticed though that she kept giving me the same item, be it Father's Day, be it birthday, be it Christmas, it was clothing. 
I thought, you know what? And then I watched her give gifts to other people, and it was clothing. And then I watched other people give her gifts, and I saw that the gifts that she got most excited about were clothing. I thought, you know what? I should probably change what I give her. And then I watched. I said, now, where does she go to shop and for, for clothing? And I always go to Walmart, and, and I noticed that she didn't go there. And I saw these uh, Old Navy bags come back into our home. I said, ah, she would probably like clothing from Old Navy. It took me a couple of years, but I got there. And so, uh, so before, a couple days before her birthday, a few years ago, I'm all excited. Okay? And so I, I take my lunch break, and I, I go, I drive uh, to Old Navy, which I have no desire. I mean, if you work at Old Navy, I apologize, but I have no desire to go into that store. But I, I, I walk in, I go to the, the women's clothing section, and who do I run into? Whitney, okay? <laughs> and it was bad news, good news, okay? The, the bad news was the, the surprise was, was kind of over. She goes, what are you doing here? I said, I always go here on my lunch break. What are you talking about? <laughs> Old Navy, I love the dog. Uh, and she said, uh, but the good news was I had figured her out, okay? I knew the place that she liked to be. And so, you know, I, I give gifts to, to Whitney, and I, I observe her. It's not always clothing. You know, our first, uh, our first October 25th, her birthday that we were here in Peoria, uh, I gave my wife a Menards gift card, okay? And she liked it, okay? We had just moved in a new house. Now, some guys give the, their wife a Menards gift card. It would not go over very well. My wife loved it, okay? The key is this, that husbands become a student of your wife. Know her so well that you don't have to, to wonder, what in the world would I get her for her birthday? What in the world do I get her for Christmas? Observe her, know her in such a way that you can live with her in an understanding way. And then when there's a conflict and she begins talking in, in her language that seems different from your own, you understand it. You're fluent in it. You can translate back and forth between that language because you become a, a student of your wife. And I believe that's what Peter is telling us here in First Peter chapter 3, that men, it's our, our responsibility, it's incumbent upon us to be a student of our wives in that manner. So, a Christ-like husband loves his wife in these ways, men. He, he leads her, he sacrifices for her, he spiritually nourishes her, he physically provides for her, he cleaves to her, he lives with her in such a way that he's, he's gentle and he's understanding. Before we turn our attention to the wife, let me just, let me just uh, take a moment here to, to pray for the, the husbands here in, in our church, and then we'll turn our attention to the wife. Uh, Father, we, we do just pray again for, for husbands. Uh, what an awesome responsibility you've given us to, to be obedient to you in these areas. And, and uh, we do confess that, that such obedience is, is beyond, beyond uh, those of us who are husbands, and yet we know that, that it's not beyond you and your ability to provide for us. And so we pray you give us that, that ability and give us your, your, just the joy of being godly, Christ-like husbands. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, let's, uh, wives, are you ready? Are you all, you all pumped? You all excited? I can just sense the, the enthusiasm in the room all week. You've just been excited all month to, to get into this. A few, uh, I guess it was last year, I was doing a wedding, the wedding of, of Dan and Alyssa Hawkinson. And if you know Alyssa Hawkinson, she is just a, just a sweet, sweet young lady. And she, she came to me as we were doing the premarital counseling. She said, I'd like, I'd like to do something. And I said, sure, your wedding. I'm just there to, to, to pronounce you man and wife at the end. And she said, well, I, I would like to, to wash Dan's feet in the wedding. 
So, well, I I don't know if that's a really good idea. I mean, uh, you know, the whole purpose that it, you know, sometimes it's in the wedding, but it's always the husband that does it for the wife because he's showing that he's taking on Christ-like servant leadership and he's going to provide for his wife as Christ provided for the church. And does that kind of change your mind? She goes, no, I, I want to do it because I want to, to demonstrate to him that I'm, I'm willing to sacrifice for him as well. And in my mind's eye, I had this picture, you know, there, there's this beautiful bride in, in her beautiful dress and her hair's all done and, and I, I just had this picture of the ceremony of her, her you know, getting down on her hands and knees and, and washing uh, Dan's feet. And not that there's anything wrong with Dan's feet, but their feet. And there's this bride in her white dress, and it's kind of gross. And I just said, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, if you know Alyssa, she is very sweet, very persistent, and, and convinced me. Okay, well, you know, it, people wash Jesus' feet too. Okay, let's go for it. So there was the wedding, and there at that time, she got down, and she was beautiful in her beautiful dress and had her hair done, and, and sure enough, she got down on her, her, her knees, and it was exactly as I, I had pictured it, except as she, as she began washing his feet, it wasn't degrading, it wasn't humiliating. It was probably one of the most beautiful pictures I have ever seen. Because here's a bride in all her beauty on her wedding day, and taking it upon herself to humble herself and serve her husband. That's the essence of what a wife does by God's grace. She takes it upon herself to pursue oneness with her husband as she seeks to make herself, to make herself serve him. Wives, you know, we're going to talk about some difficult things and. I really have been, uh, honestly, a, a little bit nervous as, as I've, I've considered what to say and how to say it, and I don't want to be stronger than what Scripture says, and I don't want to be weaker than what Scripture says. I, I want to be very biblical in what we say, and, and I know that, that wives, God has called you to a, a very difficult task of, of being uh, a God-honoring wife, and so I've, I've been praying for you as, as, as I've been preparing this week to, to talk about this, and I'd like to just remind you of, of the relationship within the Trinity Remember, we've been talking about how we can gain a lot of understanding from the way that a wife and husband relate to one another by looking at the relationship within the Trinity. And I just want to encourage you that I'm not going to ask you to do anything that God himself does not do within that relationship in the Trinity. Here's what Bruce Ware writes in the book, God, Father, and Son, the, the, the book on the Trinity. He's talking about the role of the Father. And he says, those in authority... Those in authority in a marriage relationship, we've talked about how a husband's to be a leader. Those in authority need to be more like the father. The father who lavishes favor on others by calling them to participate in his work. Those under authority, and in a marriage relationship, we've talked about how the husband's to lead and the wife is under his authority, need to be more like the son who gratefully and obediently embraced the, the work given him by embraces the work given him by his father and gives highest honor to the father for all that is accomplished. What a revolution would take place in our homes and churches if such reciprocal honoring of one another took place all while maintaining clearly the lines of authority that exist by God's good purpose and wise design. What lessons we learn then from clearly seeing the distinct roles of the father among the persons, the triune Godhead. You see what Bruce Ware is saying there? 
within the Trinity, you have God the Father exercising perfect leadership, and you have God the Son exercising perfect submission, and there's a, a mutual honoring and a, and a perfect relationship there between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what we desire to see in our marriage relationships as well. It's so far off the radar screen of how we understand authority and how we understand submission that it's hard, I believe, for us to, to grasp the biblical picture of marriage. Because we hear the word leadership and we think one thing. We hear the word uh, submission and we think something else. And it's not in accordance with what God's word describes as leadership and as submission. Remember, biblical goal of marriage is oneness. The husband pursues that oneness with his wife as he sacrificially loves her. What we're going to see as we go through the book of Ephesians and some other texts this morning is that the wife pursues oneness by honoring her husband. The wife, the godly wife, pursues oneness in a marriage by seeking to honor her husband. So husband seeks oneness in a marriage. How? Well, by sacrificially loving his wife. The wife, her sacrifice in the marriage relationship is to, to seek not her own glory, but the honor of her husband. You, you see how the things go together, right? It's like a, a finely tuned machine. If one part's off, the other part isn't going to be able to, to function to its fullest capacity. That doesn't mean if, if in a, you're in a marriage relationship and your husband isn't loving you the way that you, you need to be loved, that you need, have the, the, uh, the right to say, well, I'm not going to honor him. Or if your wife isn't honoring you as a husband, you say, well, I'm not sacrificing for her. But what I'm saying is this. In God's design for marriage, it works perfectly when both parties are pursuing the same goal, their God-given role. Uh, this summer at our, our house uh, has been the, the summer of the weed eater. Um, this summer, I have purchased more weed eaters than I think many people purchase in a lifetime. And uh, I've just been at, at, at you know, box stores, and I know I should go to, to Wheelings right away and just buy the good one. But you know, I've been at box stores, and so I've just bought one. And so the, the first one we bought, uh, it literally wouldn't cut the grass. Okay? The engine ran great. You know, the, everything was great in the engine, but I would, I would take the weed eater and I would, I would put it on, down on the grass and it would be going, but it's like it was massaging the grass instead of cutting it, okay? And so I said, I, I took it back. I said, this literally won't cut the grass. And they said, okay, fine. Took it out, went somewhere, bought another one. And, and this one, it, 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 it wouldn't last through like a minute. And he says, well, you know, that's clearly defective. And then this last one uh, that we, we purchased and we just returned this last week, um, you would, you would fill it with gas, you would start it, and then it, 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 it would last, again, like maybe a minute or two, and then you start it again, and it, apparently that gas that you consumed, uh, you had to fill it up again for it to start. The rest of the gas in the tank was superfluous, okay? It ran on, it ran on like a pint of gas or a, 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 thimble, a, a, a thimble of, of gas, and so we returned that as well. It's been the, the summer of the weed eater. Uh, a weed eater, you can't just have one part that works well. Both, all the parts kind of function together in order to create a, a, an effective weed eater that can weed eat the lawn. And if you have a good suggestion on that, um, I'd, I'd love to hear it. Um, so anyway, what we're talking about here is marriage and how both parties come together, pursue this goal of oneness. The wife, the godly wife we're seeing here, pursues oneness in her marriage by seeking to honor her husband. Let's turn to J Jeremiah chapter 2. We're going to look at a few characteristics of, the god of a godly wife. And the first characteristic we see of a godly wife is that a godly wife 
finds fulfillment in God's plan for her life. Jeremiah chapter 2, we're going to look at the, the first 13 verses here again, and we see that a godly wife finds fulfillment in God's plan for her life. Listen to what Jeremiah says again. God says, go and proclaim this in the hearing of Jerusalem. He talks about how he remembers the devotion of their youth, their love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate it had incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. So the Lord saying his protective hand was upon Israel. Israel was his, his special people, and they had a, a devotion to him that was similar to the devotion that a, that a wife would have toward her husband, a, a bride to her groom. Then, verse 4, the word of the Lord comes again to the house of Jacob, all the clans of the house of Israel. Verse 5, God asks, what wrong did your fathers find in me? What happened? You were, you were devoted to me in, in love. What happened? What fault did you find in me? That they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless. They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in the land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells. And I brought you, verse 7, into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests, you know, those who were supposed to be taking the people to the Lord, the, the priests did not say, where's the Lord? Those who handled the law, the people that were in charge of, of knowing all about God, those people, he says, didn't know me. The shepherds transgressed against me, and the prophets who were supposed to be speaking my word, they prophesied by Baal. And they went after things, listen to this, they went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I, shall con I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. From, from cross to the coast of Cyprus, for cross to the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to, send to Kedar and examine with care, see if there's ever been such a thing. Has a, has a nation changed its God, even though they are not gods? That's, that is, people who've worshipped false gods have been loyal to these false gods, even though they weren't truly gods. But my people have changed their glory, that's him, for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hoot out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. I want us to kind of soak up some truths here in Jeremiah chapter 2. And I think that this first attribute of a godly wife is, is foundational. Because wives, I'm going to be asking you, just as I asked the husbands, I'm going to be asking you to, to do some tough things. And so right here, at, uh, right off the bat, we need to decide where are we going to find our fulfillment? Wives, where are you going to find your fulfillment? Are you going to find fulfillment in God? Or are you going to find your fulfillment in, in, in seeking something else? Is your fulfillment going to be found in what God tells you to do? Or is your fulfillment going to be found in, in doing what you desire to do? And it's a question all of us need to ask, right? And some people say, you know what, I'm going to try to fulfillment and find fulfillment in myself. And the first thing we see about this, this text is the unsatisfying life, the unsatisfying life consists of trying to find fulfillment apart from God in ourselves. 
God's plan for the nation of Israel was to lead them, even through some difficult times, to lead them in a land where they could, could enjoy his presence, enjoy living out a life in obedience to him, and enjoy a land that was flowing with milk and honey. And, and yes, he, he, left, he led them, he says here in verse 6, through, some, through a land of deserts and pits, a land of, of drought and deep darkness, but, but he was leading them for what was best for them, and they rejected the joy that he offered, and they turned instead to misery. And why would they do that? Because they believed that the joy that God offered wasn't as great as the joy they could find apart from God. He says here in verse 12 of verse 13 that they did two evils. The first evil that they did is they rejected him, who was the living water, and the other evil that they did is they pursued these, these broken cisterns. Now, in the climate in which the people of Israel lived, there were several different sources of water. The best source of water would be like a spring or a river, this, this fresh water, this, this nourishing water, this, this water that's just a joy to consume and drink. Another type of water would be well water. You know, you, you dig a hole deep enough, you hit water, and you, you drink that water. It's not as, as fresh as the this, this stream water, this living water, but it, it's still good water. Another type of water that you could get would be a water from a cistern. And a cistern is, is a, a hole that's kind of dug out of limestone and it's caked with plaster. And then what happens is if it rains, that water kind of collects in the cistern. But if it rains, it's collecting not just what's directly falling into it, but they kind of stream channels and it's just kind of like runoff water. Okay? And so it has all the stuff that runoff water would have. And in this cistern that God describes that the people of Israel are drinking from, it's a cracked cistern. So it's like a, a crack has happened in this plaster, and, and the water is seeped out of the cistern, and, and now all that's left in that cistern is like mud and, and gunk and ooze. And so the people, they could have come to the stream of living water and, and just drunken deeply from the Lord and found their satisfaction in Him, but they've said, you know what, His commands for our life aren't what we want it to do. And so instead of experiencing the joy of being obedient to him, I'm going to pursue my own path. And what they were finding is that pursuing their own path was like digging down deep in there and pulling up some mud and just kind of drinking that. Not that satisfying. The unsatisfying life, wives, I think this is important for you to to consider and, and agree with as we continue. The unsatisfying life consists of trying to find fulfillment in ourselves instead of God. The satisfying life, by contrast, consists of finding fulfillment in God. He's our living water. He's our ultimate satisfaction. And listen to this very carefully. The satisfying life is not always the easy life. The satisfying life, the life of obedience to God, the life where you can can drink deeply from the waters of of, of the living God, is not always an easy life. Look again at the text. God brought the people of Israel through a wilderness. He brought them through a place that was so terrible, it says that no one, no one passes through there, no man dwells. Wives, sometimes you are going to find yourself in a desert. You are going to find yourself in a place that seems very miserable. And you have before you two options. In this misery, am I still going to choose to be obedient to God 
and to find my satisfaction and my fulfillment from what God tells me to do, or am I going to go over here to this, this cistern and, 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 and drink the ooze? Whenever I go running, I like, before I go running, I like to go in the kitchen and grab one of our big glasses, and I like to, to put ice in it and just a, a little bit of water, maybe about a third of the way full. And then I go out and I, I set that water on, on the sidewalk, and, and I go for my run, and if I finish a lap or something, a loop, I, I may I come over there, and the, the, the ice is kind of melted a little bit, and I just love drinking that, that, that perfect temperature water, perfect consistency. Unfortunately for me, my daughter also, Ellie, also likes that water. And so she likes to play with that water. And so she might like to, to, to take some grass and put it in that water or, or, or put some different things. And so you, you can imagine as I'm making my, my loop and I, I come and I, I see that the glass is, I'm very particular about my glass. And I notice it's moved a little bit. And so I, I reach down to pick it up and I, I have this decision, do I drink this or not drink this? Okay. And generally, if, if I see that Ellie has been with it, it depends on how thirsty I am, but generally I say, pass. Okay. Now imagine if I completed a, a loop and I I see this, this beautiful uh, glass of ice water, uh, completely uh, Ellie tamper-proof here, and, and I, I reach down, and, and I'm about to drink out of it, and I say, you know what? It just rained yesterday. That gutter water looks pretty good, too. I think I'll go with the gutter water and reach down there, and I bend down, and I just start licking that up, okay? I can't really see myself doing that. And yet, as believers and wives I'm applying this directly to you. Sometimes we say, you know what? I know in the past I found obedience to God very satisfying, but right now, eh, too hard, too difficult. I'd rather pursue the, the gutter water. As we get ready to, to go forward, wives, with the study, I would just ask you to make this commitment. Say, so, you know what? My commitment is going to be obedience to Scripture. I'm going to place myself under the authority of God's word and in God's teaching as opposed to how I might in and of myself find fulfillment. I'm not going to try to pursue fulfillment in what I believe would be best, but in what God says is best. So wives, you know, as we continue to study next week, I just ask you to commit with me to, to drink from the stream, not the gutter. The second, uh, second characteristic, of a go- characteristic of a godly wife here is a godly wife helps her husband in his God-given ministry. A godly wife helps her husband in his God-given ministry. Turn back to the book of Genesis that we looked at several weeks ago. And remember what we saw about the creation of Eve and, and what her purpose was in, in relation to Adam. We see that God, in verse 18 of Genesis chapter 2, looks at what had been created, and throughout, the, throughout the, the pattern of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 had been that God would create and say it's good, God would create and say it's good. Now he's, he's created man, and, and he says, this isn't perfect yet, this isn't my full plan. He says, the Lord God says, it, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper, a companion, fit for him, suitable for him, designed for him. Now out of the the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, the birds, the heavens, and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him, suitable for him, designed for him. 
Wives, God's role for you is to help your husband in his God-given ministry. We, do, we see three, let me just kind of give you three thoughts here as we think about that being your responsibility. First of all, a godly wife helps her husband in his God-given ministry by coming alongside of him and, and helping him do the things that, that God has called him to do. We see an authority structure laid out here in Genesis chapter 2. The, the, the woman's ministry flows through the, the leadership, the godly leadership of her husband, and fulfillment for the wife comes through this, this ministry with the husband. And by help, again, we have to correct our unbiblical understanding of words sometimes. Help doesn't mean that the husband gives a wife a checklist and says, hey, do these chores for me, right? Help means that the together as, as partners, they, they do this ministry that God has, has called them to do through the husband's authority. And, and she's actively engaged in the ministry process. And, and she's serving as a, as a companion, as an emotional, spiritual, physical companion to do the work God has called them to do. A second thought here. She helps her husband fulfill his God-given responsibilities, his God-given ministry, by doing those ministries that God has called him to do, but he can't do on his own, or that he can't fulfill, those things that he's unable to do. A wife, in this sense, is an extension of her husband. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6, the the, the wife says to her husband, set me as a, a seal upon your heart. Set me as a, a seal upon your arm. And what a seal was, was a, a representation of a person. And so when the wife is saying, I want to be your seal, she's saying, I want to be your representative. I, I want people to, to look at me and, and see you. I, I want us to be so close in this relationship that we're not distinguished from one another as far as our representation to those around us. And so a wife is an extension of the ministry of her husband as well. And as, as they're partners in this ministry, the, the wife does things to, to fulfill the ministry of her husband that her husband has no ability to, to do on his own. Think about my own calling. You know, I believe that God has called me to, to shepherd this church. I believe that God has, has called me to shepherd this church, but if I believe that calling to be true, I have to meet the qualifications of what God says a shepherd is to be and to do. And one of the qualifications for a shepherd of Christ's church is that he has a family that's managed well. He has children who are faithful. Now I have, on my own, I can't do that. I can participate in that, and and I I believe I'm a crucial component of that, but but I don't think uh, on my own I could do all the ministries of the church and the ministries of, uh, of my household. And so God has provided Whitney who does an amazing ministry as an extension of me in, in areas that I can't go. I believe as a shepherd of the church, there are, are uh, women in the church that, that I desire to minister to. There, there are women in the church that Whitney and I both love, and, but there are just some conversations, some ministries that, you know, I can't go. I, I'm not going to, you know, a, a women's baby shower perhaps or something. You know, Whitney is an extension of me in that ministry. She does those things that, that I can't do. Let me read you another very interesting verse, verses. Remember, a, a godly wife helps her husband in his God-given ministry by helping the things he's called to do. They're, they're doing some things together. She's also an extension of him, secondly. But thirdly, and, 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 and this is hard, okay? this is hard. She also helps him in his ministry by seeking his glory. A wife seeks the exaltation and glory of her husband. Let me read a verse to you. 1 Corinthians eleven seven says this. It says, man ought not to cover his head since he's the image and, and glory of God, but, but woman 
is the glory of man. For man was not made for, for, from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And uh, this is a very difficult truth to grasp. And I think it's difficult for several reasons. One is that we want our own glory. You know, husbands, as you've been called to sacrificially serve your wife by leading her, sometimes we think, okay, leadership is for me, and so I'm going to lead her, and, and she's going she's to follow me, and we're going to pursue what I desire for our family to do. And we've, we've talked about husbands, no, that's, that's 180 degrees from what God calls you to do. Leadership means doing what God calls you to do, serving her and becoming the greatest servant in the family. Wives, here's the difficult part of your role, one of the many difficult parts of your role. God says as you fulfill the ministry that God has, has called you through your husband to do, you're seeking his glory. You're seeking to make him look good. And that could be a tough thing, right? <laughs> Incredibly humbling. So many areas in which a wife strives to make her husband look good in, in the eyes of others. And I think about it's true not just in a husband-wife relationship, but, but so many different times when we are called to submit ourselves underneath the authority of someone else. That God's calling us is, is to help exalt them and that make that person that we're serving look good. And it's humbling, but it's more than submission, right? Because the heart here of a wife is, is a heart that, that, that humbles herself, just as Christ humbled himself and took upon himself the, the form of a servant. And a wife says, my desire here is to, in my heart's desire, is to make him look good in the eyes of others, to encourage him in his ministry with the Lord. And I get excited, I get excited in my heart when that takes place. Well, we're going to, to stop there this morning, but, but, you know, wives, I just encourage you as an application here, ask your husband, you know, how, how can I come alongside you in this ministry that God has called us to? And if your husband maybe is, is walking with the Lord, perhaps you can talk about some things you can do together. And if he's not, maybe there's some things you can talk to him about how you desire to come alongside him more in, in the family. And, and uh, this, is, this is a hard truth, because sometimes, and this is true for both husbands and wives, the the ministries we do can, can take us away from what maybe God truly wants us to do. There was a time where, where Whitney was involved in a ministry, and as we began talking about this ministry, we realized that this ministry was, was taking her more and more away from, from the family and, and causing her to not do the things that she believed were her primary responsibilities. And so we said, well, let's, let's retool things. And so we waited until the, the end of that commitment of that ministry and, and retooled some different ministries that we were doing, and we focused more on doing what we believe that God was, was calling us to do. It's a constant challenge for a wife and for a husband as well. I pray that, that God gives us the ability, as we go through the study, wives, to, to take upon ourselves the, the, the form of a servant, just like a, a beautiful bride in all her glory chooses, chooses to humble herself. May all of us take upon ourselves the image of a servant, as, as Christ did, and seek the glory of another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the ability to come to your word here this morning, and I pray for the wives here. I pray that you give them just grace to be obedient in this area, and, and I pray for husbands as well, for all of us, husbands, single people. I pray that you would help us to, to be able to humble ourselves and to, to uh, seek the glory not of ourselves, but ultimately of you and others as well. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.